The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's very good to be here. I'm honored to be asked to speak in chapel. I've done this a few times over my, um, this is my 10th year here at Cairn. I remember my first year, um, they wanted me to speak at chapel because I was a new professor just to get to know, um, you know, so the students would get to know me. And the, uh, the praise band, and this is nine or 10 years ago, you don't know any of them, the praise band, put on quite a, um, a set, and I think they actually did a couple encores in that. So when I got up here, I'm looking at the clock and I only had about 15 minutes to talk. So I do appreciate the, the time, maybe. Um, I, I'm, they didn't trust me to speak that long back then. Maybe they trust me now, I don't know. Um, so it's, uh, it's good to be here speaking to you. Uh, many of you have had me for Bible classes, but um, now, I get to even more intentionally preach to you a little bit. You know that I will do that on occasion whenever something really uh, really strikes me as uh, you needing to hear. But I chose Job 28 for a couple reasons. I think it's a, a great chapter. It's a favorite of mine. I'm also in the midst of preparing to teach a graduate class on the entire book of Job next semester. So, um, you know, become a grad student and take that one with me. Uh, if you take wisdom literature with me, you'll get a few weeks on Job. And so for all of you, this one chapter that I think is central to the book and has a great message for us today. So I now don't have to read through all of it. Thank you to uh, Mark for doing that. But I will refer to much of it because I want us to get this whole picture of what Job 28 is teaching us. And I really think there are some implications for us today, significant ones. The book of Job, if you remember, is, uh, you know, we're jumping in at chapter 28. So what has been happening so far, you're probably familiar with the first couple chapters where God and Satan are debating over Job and what is his faith based on, and then they put him to these tests and he suffers in these ways. And then we've had, um, after the first two chapters, about 25 chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends, and we'll, we'll discuss them. Job's friends, the three friends, have stopped speaking at this point. Job is having some, you know, sharing some thoughts with us, with whoever's listening. Um, soon then, Elihu, the fourth friend, will come on the scene. And finally, God will come and actually speak into this situation and give some closure to the book. Um, we, one of the things that I will point out to us is we, the readers, are in a very privileged position in the book of Job. We know that the three friends don't see very clearly. They make accusations against Job that he has sinned in a great way, and that's why he's suffering. And they're calling him to repentance where he says, I know that I'm a sinner, and maybe I've sinned in some small ways that I can't even remember, and I but I've done no big thing that would result in the suffering that I have. And so the book of Job is about suffering, but it's about something bigger than that. It's about, um, I'll just say it, the knowledge of God. It's about our limited knowledge of God, and that's going to come out in this chapter. So I see this chapter as a central, um, a central chapter in the book that, that really lays out for us what is this book about and what is it teaching us. All right. So without further ado, and I will refer back to some of that as I go through, if you noticed the first 11 verses, um, what is man doing here? Uh, there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. 
what is being described in these first 11 verses is not wisdom. You know, you might see the, the heading in the ESV, where is wisdom? Well, it's not yet about wisdom in the first 11 verses, or we don't necessarily know what the connection is going to be. It's about human efforts digging under the ground, literally, to find gold and silver and precious jewels. All right, That's what it's literally about, that we as humans have this great ability. The other animals haven't done this. The birds of the sky can't see underground to find this. But we have this great ability, and we have put so much effort into digging under the ground to get gold and silver and even iron to make things and the precious jewels that we, we consider so valuable by the way that they look. We have accomplished this. There are two ways that this search for hidden treasure under the ground is going to be related then to the search for wisdom that follows. Okay, so we have success finding the precious jewels and so forth under the ground. Beginning in verse 12, though, it's where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. Verse 15, I'm just going to pull a couple of things out. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed out. And it continues on in that, in that line of thought. So one thing that we can see in comparison between wisdom and the gold and silver that has been mined out of the ground is that wisdom is much more valuable. It cannot be bought with silver and gold. Another thing that I would say is there is no, there's no shortcut, but I'll come back to that. The value of wisdom, do we recognize how valuable it is? And then the intense search for it will be the other aspect that I'll get to. But how valuable is wisdom? Do we seek after it? For us as Christians, I would say we need to recognize its value is just as central as the Old Testament will have. Even if you're not reading about wisdom on every single page of the New Testament, you actually are, you just don't realize it. Um, Jesus himself is wisdom in the flesh. If we're reading about Jesus, he is the full embodiment of wisdom. And I'll, I'll give you a list of some summaries that people have come up with. What is, what is wisdom if we recognize it? Wisdom, here's the picture that I get whenever I'm reading the first part of Job 28 and then as it connects to wisdom and the search for wisdom. If you've ever watched any old westerns, all right, not the gunfight kind necessarily, but the ones that are, you know, the people are out in the middle of nowhere, and sometimes they are panning for gold in the stream, okay? So have you ever seen that? And yeah, they, they, if it's a good movie, they're probably getting into gunfights at some point too, but, you know, so they're panning for gold. And if you have a, probably an inaccurate historically, inaccurate movie, what are they going to find? They're just going to reach down in, they're going to pull up this big gold nugget and say, all right, I found it, I'm done. The more accurate depiction is going to have them panning for gold, where they, they literally have this pan with a mesh that they're getting the, the silt and everything from a stream, and they're, they're shaking it and looking through it, and oh, look at that. I got rid of all the other stuff, and I find this tiny, tiny little speck of gold. So I'm going to pull that out. I'm going to put it over here. And if I do that day after day after day, finding those specks of gold, 
what will accumulate is I'll have a little bag of gold that I can then, you know, if I'm a gold miner way out there, every once in a while, once every so many months, I get to go into town and buy some supplies and hand in my gold and get some cash for it. That type of search is what we're talking about and picturing here in Job 28. And it's recognizing that that gold, that little speck of gold, is more valuable than the dirt and rocks that we're sifting through. So it's recognizing what is wisdom and its value. In one of these movies, I remember, and I haven't um, looked back to try to identify what movie it was, um, there's this scene where the, the gold miner, or the guy who's been um, panning for gold, has his whole bag of gold dust. And he's taking it into town to redeem it. And he is attacked, here you have your gunfight, he is attacked by the robbers who shoot him dead. And then they pick up this bag and kind of sift through it, and they're like dumping it out, and they're like, why is he carrying around a bag of sand? Because that's what it looked like to them, these tiny little specks. They didn't recognize its value. So that's another thing to consider as I'm seeing this, this analogy coming out of the Bible, and as I'm thinking about it, do we recognize the value of it? Do we recognize it when we see it? Let me give you a summary. That I, I didn't write this. I think it's a very good summary of the key characteristics of the wise that you can find in the book of Proverbs. All right. So here is the picture of the wise person, I think, from the book of Proverbs. The wise are characterized by kindness and mercy. They are ever learning, always seeking knowledge and wisdom. Notice that the wise are always seeking wisdom. They're humble, self-controlled, diligent, righteous, just. The wise are people of integrity, being trustworthy, discerning, slow to anger, slow to speak. And when they speak, they speak the truth. They accept criticism and they seek peace. There I think is a very good, again, I didn't put that together, but I thought it was a very good summary picture of what the wise look like biblically, both Old Testament and New Testament. You see James talk about that, you know, the slow to speak, um, slow to anger, quick to listen. My first question then is, do we as Christians really value those characteristics? Because here's something that I want to point out about wisdom. Wisdom is boring, all right? So consider this. You're going to tune in to the new reality show in which they have showed, they have chosen 10 characters who are kind, self-controlled, trustworthy, slow to anger, as just a few of those. Is that going to be an entertaining reality show? No, it's not. What is entertaining, according to the Bible, all the things that folly displays? Those are the things that are entertaining. Even when we get into, not even the reality show, the political talk show and the talking heads, who do they want? Those who will be entertaining. Those who are going to shout down their opponent. Those who are going to get angry. Those who are going to be less than self-controlled. Do we realize how much our society values entertainment over wisdom? And that entertainment is, why is it so entertaining? We get to watch people make fools of themselves, right? That's, the, that's what it is. When we as Christians are consuming that entertainment, we're affected by it. 
if we are going to church once a week and we get a 30-minute sermon, or if you're at a Bible college and get Bible class in chapels, you get a little more, but see how much the entertainment that may not be bad in and of, a, of itself, you know, in small doses, how much that can affect us. And what do we value? Because, as I said, wisdom, if you just look at it, it looks pretty boring often. Being self-controlled, seeking peace rather than conflict. But those are the characteristics of biblical wisdom. So who are we listening to? What are we watching? Who is influencing us? Are we valuing wisdom over those other things? When it comes to, again, our political discourse, that I'm not going, I could say much more and I don't want to. But in our political discourse, it's about winning the argument. And if I think that I can win the argument by shouting down the other side, I'll take that as a win. If I can win the argument by mischaracterizing the other side, I'll take the win there. That whenever it comes to those types of discourse in our society, what, tr what suffers is the truth, because it's about winning. Wisdom values the truth. Let me just read a few Proverbs that are describing the fool that I think are, are, are what I'm talking about here. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I'm going to have more to say about that, that as we seek to understand others rather than just shout our opinion. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Do we recognize wisdom when we see it? Do we seek it? So let me just read a few more verses about um, this search for wisdom that we have here in Job 28. Verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. So even the realm of the dead is personified here as saying, we've heard a rumor of it. They don't claim to know it. Notice that it, the deep and the ocean say, it's not in us. Why do they say that? There's no shortcut to wisdom, right? It's a long path that we must strive on throughout our lives. And those who have attained any wisdom would say, I haven't attained it all yet. There's much more that I need to seek. So there's no, you can't dive under the sea, according to this picture, and just find it somewhere. It's something that God promises us, and we know that, to give us wisdom, but he doesn't promise to give it to us in an instant. It might take time. It might be through tests and trials and experience that we gain it, but do we value it? Who are we looking up to? Are we looking up to those who are characterized in our elders as wise and discerning, calm and peaceable, those, those characteristics that I read before that the Proverbs say, this is what the wise look like, or not? Do we recognize it? Do we recognize its value? Do we see that it, is, it should be our goal to seek it? And are we actually making the effort 
to seek it out? Or are we distracted? We turn to the the last portion then that I'll, I'll have much more to say about here. Verse 23, I want to read it. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. He said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So my warning and disclaimer here is be careful. Don't just read the last verse and say, aha, problem solved. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom done. I can go away. All right. I fear the Lord. I have it. The fear of the Lord is seen in Proverbs as the beginning of wisdom. It's our starting point. It, It is necessary for us to gain wisdom, but I would be careful of saying that that is all of wisdom. All right. So that's just one kind of caution. Don't just jump to the end and say, no problem. Because what we see in verse 23 is, where is wisdom? We can't find it, according to verse 21. It's hidden from us. It's elusive. Do we recognize that? It's not just going to fall into our lap. It's something that we have to pursue. It's elusive, but we may not be able to find it every time we're looking for it. What is the difference between our wisdom and God's wisdom, is how I want to frame this. This is not the same because there are biblical categories and comparisons between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. But that is not the comparison here. The comparison I I see us um, being shown here is the comparison between our godly wisdom and God's wisdom. Our godly wisdom and God's wisdom, are they the same? Here is the difference that I think is the key to this chapter and the key to what the book of Job is saying What does God have? He, verse 23, understands the way to it. He knows its place, for he looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God knows everything. God is omniscient. Therefore, he is capable of having not just complete knowledge, but complete wisdom. Our knowledge is partial. We know in part. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians. We prophesy. We know in part. Our knowledge is partial. And so I believe what this is teaching and what the book of Job is showing us, therefore, is since our knowledge is partial, our wisdom, as godly as it might be, as much as it is from God, is partial wisdom. We cannot have all of God's wisdom because we do not have all knowledge. We do not have all the knowledge that God has. So our wisdom and knowledge are in part. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that they're limited. So even as we are attaining bit by bit like that gold dust, little more and more knowledge of God and wisdom of how to live life and all that, God has the giant gold nugget somewhere, right? That's what he has. We have the tiny little bits that we're going to continue and continue to accumulate, if that's our pursuit, but we will never attain the level of God's wisdom because we don't have his knowledge. What does that do for me? And I I believe that that is, as I said, for me, the central teaching of the book of Job. 
Because think again about Job's friends. We know that Job's friends are wrong because we, the reader, we have access to chapters 1 and 2, which gives us this rare glimpse inside the inner workings of God in heaven and why the decisions are made. We know that as the readers of Job. Job's friends have no idea that that happened. They have no idea why Job is suffering, so they jump to conclusions. We can look at Job's friends and say, look at how stupid they are. They don't know what's going on. We know what happened in heaven. But then the next thing we should recognize is that normally we are Job's friends. We are in the position of Job's friends where we don't have that special revelation, that special glimpse into heaven. And what should that do? That should lead us to humility, number one. Christian arrogance. All right, if you want to get me started, all right. So Christian arrogance. It's when we say, we have the Bible, we don't need anything else. All right, well, not true, okay? Um, the Bible is God's word. It's the complete revelation that he wants us to have right now. But there are lots and lots of other things that we need and make use of in our daily life. As college students, do you use textbooks that have other information, that have other insight? Do you go to a doctor who uh, applies modern insights of medicine to you? Hopefully you do if you need to. Um, you don't say, all I need is the Bible. There is an arrogance among Christians that sets me off and I immediately um, react against when it is we, because, and it's even this idea, well, we have God's complete revelation. I was careful in how I said it a moment ago. Well, we have everything that he has told us so far, but guess what? When Jesus comes again, I think there's going to be more revelation for us. This is true and good and exactly what he wants, to know us, wants us to know right now. But this is not everything. And we need to be careful because we make sometimes those leaps that all I need is a Bible and that's all I have and that's all I base my life on. Okay, but that's not true. And it's an arrogance and here's where it goes. It goes next to, and those out there who don't believe what I do about the Bible, and maybe some of you in here who don't believe exactly what I do about the Bible, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to learn anything from you. There's this, and I'll just use the word arrogance, it's this conviction that I have all the answers. I should not pick on them, but I have two teenagers at home, all right? And I'll do it this way. And what I see in them is myself as a teenager. So I'll do it that way. Um, when I was a teenager, high school student, through college, I thought I had all the answers. I thought I knew it all, and my parents had no idea what they were talking about. So whenever I see that in my own children, I say, yes, they got that for me. Their mother, my wife, says, why, did, why are they like that? I'm like, yes, that's because because of me and because they're teenagers, but that idea that we know it all, right? Um, we Christians are prone to that. This chapter is teaching us that we don't know it all. 
We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the explanations. If anything, the end of the book of Job, the characters in the book don't get the explanation of what happened in the first two chapters that we, the readers, get. Where do I see this come out? I see this come out, um, and I'm not picking on any individuals because I've seen this a number of times, in senior level Bible classes that I teach, like Genesis or wisdom literature. I'll have people, I'll have students read um, selections from commentators, from articles, so, so forth, that are not good conservative evangelicals. They might be more liberal, they might be more progressive, they might be feminist, they might be um, Catholic they, instead of Protestant, they might be... And occasionally I get the reaction, we shouldn't be reading those things. And my response is, I've kind of set this up that we are gonna be reading these other ideas because we're gonna to come to class and talk about it. And I tell them ahead of time, I don't agree with everything that you're gonna be reading, we shouldn't be afraid of other perspectives because I'm convinced that I have learned as much from those writers that I just listed, those categories that we would be dismissive of. They don't believe exactly what we're supposed to at Karen. Yes, I know that, but what are they doing? They're reading the Bible and trying to understand it and apply it in their lives today. If I don't hear those other perspectives, and I don't agree with all of them. I disagree with much. But why am I reading them? Because I know that I can learn from them because I have learned from them in the past. Because I know that I have my own biases. I have my own blind spots when it comes to the Bible. So that's, you know, that's my area of expertise, the Old Testament. I'm trying to read it and understand it. But if I'm just coming at it alone, I know that I have blind spots. I have biases. What do I gain from reading from others who are coming at it with different perspectives I might not agree with them, but I have to say, why do they see that? Why are they concluding that? What are they seeing in the Bible itself that leads them? If they're being careful, and, and many of them are, even if they come to different conclusions, am I ready to learn from them? I would claim that Jesus points us exactly in this direction. And this applies in biblical studies, it applies in our political world. Are we willing to learn from the other? If you ask the general scribe or lawyer of Jesus's day, you law-abiding expert in the law, good Jewish man, is there anything that you could possibly learn from a Samaritan about following the law? His answer would be no. I'm the law follower. The Samaritans are our rivals. They don't know how to worship God properly. I can learn nothing from them. So Jesus intentionally tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to show the Samaritan is the one who actually, if you see it, if you look at that, is the one who is following the law, love your neighbor as yourself. In a way that this Jewish scribe that Jesus is talking about, the lawyer who says, who is my neighbor? What does he think? Only a few people are my neighbor. Where the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, is showing love following the law better than the Jewish lawyer. Jesus does that intentionally and says, look, you can learn from your rival, from the people. You, and you know what he says when he talks to the Samaritan woman? Yes, you have your mountain. It starts with the Jews. That's where our salvation comes from. He does, in that case, um, give preference to the Jews over the Samaritans, but he's saying to the lawyer, you can learn from this example that a good Samaritan
could set. Wisdom, wisdom should teach us humility. Um, and so as I say, I listen to and learn from other perspectives. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that they say. What does this teach me? It teaches me the humility that I have partial wisdom, I have partial knowledge. I don't know it all. I have much to learn. And when we say, you want to get me going, um, when we Christians label other views, other sides, and other, other people as evil, that idea is evil. Those people espousing this idea are evil. Do you see what that does? That's now saying there is absolutely nothing we could ever learn from them. They are completely wrong because we have labeled them as evil. I would be very, very careful, and I, I would object to many of those types of characterizations that something is pure evil. What? Be careful. That is Christian arrogance right there as far as I'm concerned. Satan worshipers, okay, go ahead and label those as pure evil, I'm fine. But many of other views that we're interacting with, you know. Okay, where does this lead me? This should lead me to what I would say is a, not questioning everything, not, oh, I, I have no moorings or no foundation, but a humble confidence in my faith, a humble confidence. It leads me to humility because I don't know everything and there's so much I have to learn and so much wisdom I have to gain and I know from experience that I can gain it in many places and learn from many people. It doesn't dismiss or diminish my confidence. I know that although I don't know all the answers, that I don't have them, I know a God who has all those answers. A humble confidence in that God. Not leading me to question and diminish my faith, but instead to have a stronger faith through that. I don't know, and that's why I need to trust in God more, because I know that he is a trustworthy God, but recognizing that being an arrogant Christian is not going to be a good, to, is not the way to reach the lost, is not a way to communicate our faith. To be able to have a conversation with someone and say, I'm not going to, you know, if I'm saying, I'm not going to, give up my faith in this conversation or deny my Lord, but can I listen to someone else's perspective and say, oh, I understand where you're coming from. That allows us to engage those around us rather than just labeling them, you're wrong, you're evil, you don't know anything. But actually, we could learn something from them even if they don't have as much truth, if they don't have as much faith as we do. So I would exhort you, you know, as you're reading and thinking about this, um, leading us to humility, but an even greater confidence in God who knows all, who sees all, who has all wisdom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you are a God who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who knows all, who sees all, who has all wisdom. I think that we ha thank you that we have, have a relationship with you and place our faith in you even when we don't have all the answers, even when we don't know, even when we ask, why, Lord, why are you doing this? And you don't answer, yet we can trust in you that you know best for us and that you will see us through. And I pray all of these things in the, in the, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.